Welcome to the Bible and Me podcast from Precept UK. Being a Christian charity based here in the UK focused on helping you to know God deeply to live differently, we have discussions with some of the greatest modern men and women of God about how their relationship with God's Word, the Bible, has transformed their lives. If you are encouraged by any of the messages in this podcast, it would help us out enormously if you could leave us a review. Or better yet, get involved with God's Word for yourself at precept.org.uk. The opinions and views shared in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of Precept UK. Now, without further ado, here's Nigel with the latest episode. Well, good morning, everybody. I am delighted to uh, welcome Margaret Court, who is a companion of the Order of Australia and also MBE to the Bible and Me podcast today. Uh, Margaret is an Australian retired tennis player and former world number one. <clears throat> Considered one of the greatest tennis players of all time, her 24 major singles titles and a total of 64 major titles, including 19 Grand Slam women's doubles and 21 Grand Slam mixed doubles titles are the most in tennis history. The International Tennis Hall of Fame states, for sheer strength of performance and accomplishment, there has never been a tennis player to match. And in 2010, uh, a Sun, uh, uh, sorry, a Sydney newspaper in Australia called her the greatest female tennis player of all time, a view supported by Yvonne Goulogon Corley. Having grown up as a Roman Catholic, Margaret became associated with, Pente with Pentecostalism in the 1970s and became a Christian minister in 1991. She later founded Margaret Court Ministries. She's currently a Christian minister in Perth, West Australia. She's married to Barry Court and together they have four children. Margaret, welcome so much to the podcast today. <laughs> thank you, Nigel. It's uh, wonderful to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Now, Margaret, how did you come to faith in Christ? And, and why do you follow Jesus? Well, I, I was still on the tennis circuit and I was number one in the world. Uh, I came from a Catholic background and I used to go to church every Sunday. Uh, whether I was in a Wimbledon final or whatever, wherever I was in the world. But I remember one Sunday in uh, France and I went in and I remember looking up and I just crying out to God. I said, I know you're real. I want to know you. Where are you? There must be more to it than this. And I went on, my husband and I, to America. It was in early 70s. It was about... I just won the Grand Slam the year before. It was being 71. And uh, I went on to America and a friend we stayed there with, she kept giving me these books. <laughs> and uh, I went through them and I said to my husband, I think she's become a religious nut. And I put a lot of them in the rubbish bin, but I kept a little one about accepting Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. Didn't mean a whole lot to me, Nigel, at that time. But when I came home, a friend of mine, she was looked different. I said, something's happened to you. And she said, I went along to a meeting and I gave my heart to Christ. I said, that's interesting. I've just been reading about that. And I went along to a meeting and I don't know, it was just at one of those meetings I went to, I felt like the Holy Spirit got me up out of my seat and I gave my heart to Christ. And I had a real encounter. Uh, the power of God hit me. I had some visions uh, and I just knew if I died 
I'd go home and be with the Lord. That's how real it was with me. And I said that prayer, which I didn't own a Bible, I said the prayer in Romans 10, 9 and 10, when you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. I did that simple prayer and I tell you, I was never the same after that. And I went back on the tennis circuit and I just shared Jesus everywhere because it was so real to me. Wow. <laughs> it was wow, I tell you. Even the press people, even the press people like Rex Bellamy, who, who was of the Times magazine, he travelled with us around the circuit for years, not like today they change faces, but those men and women reporters were with us uh, for years and they knew, they knew something had happened in my life. And I, I remember saying to Rex, Rex, we've become very good friends. I said, I want, when I, we die, I want to be in heaven with you. Why don't you say this, this prayer with me? I had it written on a piece of paper and I didn't have any, I didn't even have a Bible with me. And I said, Rex, say this after me. And I said, we're going to be in heaven again. And he did it together. And he did that. Oh, wow. I know. And so many, many, there was hundreds of people I did that with that come to Christ. Did you really? So you became you became like a real evangelist straight off the bat. Oh, yeah, because I I knew that Jesus had come to live on the inside of me. He was so real and I had this joy and it was like, you know, say, why, why are you smiling? I was always a very serious, quite, you know, focused person. What, what is it about you? And they could tell it in your eyes and and wherever i went and so i just found people were coming to christ everywhere it was the easiest thing i ever did <laughs> absolutely fantastic praise god praise god isn't that well amazing? that's how it should be because it's it's real to you there's a you know he's touched your heart we all go through things in life but it's like he becomes so real in you and then you you start to know the scripture and uh you know different things happened after that squash that dampened that mm -hmm. but uh, i found then from the word of god how to come through but up until then i just had this joy nigel uh, you know it was so real to me yeah absolutely fantastic i love what you said there about um i want to i want to spend eternity with you in heaven i mean come on say the prayer i <laughs> just that is such a wonderful thing to say. I, I've said that myself on occasion with a taxi driver going to play tennis at Wimbledon and the inter-service tennis championships. I said it to a taxi driver once and, uh, you know, and I get, I've got a one, I've got a tract, you know, like a Christian story that I, that I hand out all the time to people. And uh, yeah, so, well, good on you. That's absolutely wonderful. Now you were born in New South Wales. You were the youngest of four children. You've got two older brothers and an older sister. Uh, what are your memories of growing up and your schooling? Well, uh, Aubrey, back then, uh, in the sort of the, I was born in 42, uh, was a very small country town. It was about a population of 15,000 people. But it was a very strong tennis centre. And we happened to live across the road from 24 grass tennis courts. And my family had nothing. Uh, we lived in a asbestos, tin roof home. We didn't have a car. We didn't have a television. Uh, we didn't own our own home. 
And uh, my dad, he sort of liked the alcohol. Uh, there was arguments and fights. And so my escape was to the outdoors. And my first tennis racket was a paling off the fence. And I used to hit up against a wall with a ball. I was a very much a tomboy, good cricketer, played netball and football. And we had eight boys in the street. Uh, and I was the leader of the gang. <laughs> and I was always a cowboy, never the Indian. And uh, I always remember I liked to beat the boys at everything. So, uh, but I loved the outdoors. And uh, I didn't enjoy school very much. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a very academic person. And I think the Reverend Mother at that convent where I went, she saw something in me uh, in the future. And I, it was when I was about 14, she said back then, I think you should do a, a business course, you know, typing shorthand back in those times. And she was spot on, not knowing I was going to be going ahead doing what I did in tennis, but she saw something in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember there I, in, in Aubrey was, I used to go over and play on those courts uh, some a friend of the family gave me a big old tennis racket. They saw me hitting up against the wall. I can remember I could hardly get my hand around the, the grip. It was so big and it was a wooden grip. There was no lever on it. Mm. And I remember putting transfers on it uh, to make it look pretty. And, um, and I was very fortunate, I guess, because at that time there was a, a husband and wife came from Sydney and he took over those tennis courts, the running of it, and he was a very good player. And I think in those early years, I would have been about eight or nine. Mm -hmm. He saw me hitting up against the wall all the time and they didn't have any children, took an interest in me. Mm. I was always over on those courts, hitting a ball. Yeah. And uh, he started to coach me, started to direct me with tournaments and all that sort of thing helped me tremendously at the age of 15. He said to my parents, if she's going to go any further, she's going to have to leave Aubrey and go to Melbourne. But Aubrey being such a strong tennis center and me going over after school, I used to see the men playing and I wanted to play like them. And I thought if I don't play like them, they're not going to invite me to play. So that's where I learned to serve volley. And, uh, and I was a very good athlete. Mm. So I thought I'll play like the men and they'll let me play with them. And so I was very blessed because it was such a strong tennis center. Rex Hartwig come out of that area. Bob Mark, who were Davis Cup players. They come from around that area also. So, um, you know, that's how I learned. And I think too, Nigel, the grass wasn't like it is today, like you see at Wimbledon. The bounces were bad. So I thought I'm better off going to net and not let it bounce. <laughs> so I, I have very long arms. And so I, I love to volley. And so I learned to play like the men. Wow. I, a lady after my own heart, serving and volleying and playing on grass. And I have very long arms as well, actually. So how interesting is that? No, so wow, that's uh, and to have to have twenty four grass tennis courts just literally over the road. What a blessing! Looking back on that, and then... well, I look and I think if those courts weren't there and I lived elsewhere, I doubt very much whether I ever would have played tennis. 
because there was no opportunity there. My family had no money. I mean, we, the coach didn't charge me for tennis lessons. Yeah. And I always remember my mum saying to me, because I wanted to learn the piano, she said, well, it's either two shillings back then for a tennis lesson or two shillings for a piano lesson. It's your choice. <laughs> I'm glad I chose tennis. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's how it was in those times. We didn't know any different. Uh, you know, my my clothes were hand-me-downs. So were my mum could make me clothes from the curtains. And we, we just didn't have the money there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now, you entered the Australian Championships in 1959 for the first time. And in 1960, aged 18, you won the first of seven consecutive singles titles at the Australian Championships. Uh, what do you remember of winning your first ever major championships? That must have been something. Well, I was in a seed. I'd won some country tournaments and Maria Bueno and Christine Truman uh, back then came down. They were number one and number two in the world. Mm. And uh, I entered into the Australian juniors and the open. And uh, I met Maria Bueno in the quarterfinals. And she was number one in the world. And all of a sudden, I uh, here was this young person. I was actually 17. And I beat the number one in the world. And uh, everybody got, because women didn't very much get on the center court back in those times. You know, because we had great men players, Davis Cup players. There wasn't many women that were good, particularly in our nation, though there was this group of girls coming through about four or five of us that were all quite even and you could see what was starting to come within our nation anyhow i beat her in the quarterfinal mm. and christine lost to one of the one of the other aussie girls yep. and so i went on then to beat uh, mary carter who was the number one australian and then on to jen lahane who was a a junior coming through and that she looked as though she was going to be the next Australian to be number one. And I beat her in the final. So that was my, my first year. <laughs> and today, you know, they say, uh, and I know with what's happening in the world that there was no good players back in that time that came back down to Australia in those early years, but that is not true. Mm. We had Americans coming every year. We had, we're the number one, number two in the world. But we had a, this group of Australian girls. Leslie Turner back then won two French. A lot of these international players got beaten in the quarterfinals. So you didn't hear their names in the finals. So. Yeah, yeah. so it was very interesting time. It was quite a strong group of players coming through in a lot of nations of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Wow. That, I mean, that, amazing. So you were 17 when you won that. That's right. And I wasn't seated. I wasn't expected to. Then they kept me home another year. I was very blessed when I went to Melbourne that I was, I, Frank Sedgman, who was a, a great and won Wimbledon, he saw the potential in me at the age of 15, but I was very, very skinny. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know how to talk properly. I wasn't brought up in that mm -hmm. family sort of thing. And they took me in, he and Jean. And I was allowed to work in one of his factories, but I went to a men's gym 
five mornings a week before the men got in there early morning at about seven o'clock hmm. uh, before or be 6 30 before the men got in there and i started to pump weights well women didn't do that back in those times and i got called the aussie amazon because here i was a young girl pumping weights but it was something about that and then i had a great tennis coach who was a state boxing champion he taught taught me everything about fitness about footwork and then my gym coach with circuit training and running i used to run with herb elliott and percy serity on the sand hills i, I loved that i loved all the training and the fitness that was easier to, for me than the tennis side because at the age of 15 i had a choice did i do track or did i do tennis mm. but i i liked the diversity that was in tennis and the touch and the uh, and I got used to get bored running around a track all the time. So I chose tennis. <laughs> I guess it was a bit like Nigel choosing the piano or tennis. Then I had tennis or running. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'm at 16 years old at school. I had to choose between cricket and tennis in the summer term. And I chose tennis myself. Okay. Yeah, so I can, I can understand exactly what you're talking about. Now, over the next 17 years, you became the most dominant lady in women's tennis in history, winning 24 Grand Slam singles titles. This is one better than Serena Williams, who's on 23, and Rafa Nadal, who is currently on 22. You won a total of 64 Grand Slam titles, counting doubles and mixed doubles. Now, I'd like to ask you some questions related to this, if I may. So the first question is, how did and you may have hinted at this already how did you become so dominant well i think uh, some people were a bit scared of me before they went on they they felt beaten before they went on and as fred perry said i became very good friends with him he said margaret you should never lose a match and uh, i think having a very uh, my coach when i was in melbourne uh, because I'd never learned to play on clay. He said, Margaret, you're going to have to be able to hit the ball over 100 times in a row uh, to beat the European girls because they were very good on clay and no, no Australian had ever uh, won a tournament on clay. And so I'd get to 92 and if I missed it, he'd make me start all over again. So I, I was very committed to the training, the disciplines. I was very fit. I knew I was fitter than any other uh, player in the world. Uh, and I knew I could serve volley, but I could do that also, I think, because of long arms. Mm -hmm. I wasn't scared to come to net on clay. Yes, and, uh, that's very interesting. That is very and interesting. Uh, I'd pick my balls. I learned, I learned all those things. And yeah. yet I was quite aggressive and I had a big serve. Uh, so I think a lot of girls, because... Uh, my coach, when I was little, I used to say, win seven, five, six, four. He said, well, you should have won two and two or three and two. So it was always my heart to go out there and win love and one or love and love. Um, and I had this focus. I was very disciplined, very committed. I think at the age of 13, uh, Frank Sedgman and a group of professionals came through my hometown and saw me hitting up. And Sedge said to me, you could be the first Australian woman ever to win Wimbledon. 
And somehow that goal dropped in my heart. Yes. And people would say, what do you want to do with your tennis? I'd yeah. say, I want to be the first Australian woman ever to win Wimbledon. Well, if you looked at my background, if you looked at my circumstances, there was no way possible. Mm. And they thought, oh, that's a big confession. Yeah. But, you know, I, I trained towards that. I was disciplined yeah. towards that. So I think all those things were built into me. And and as Fred Perry said, you should never lose a match. And I, and I shouldn't have in those times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but you know, your mind's a battlefield. We didn't, we didn't have psychiatrists. We didn't have trainers with us. Mm. We didn't have family with us. We had to think for ourselves. And I wasn't brought up in in that very confident background of family. But there was something in me that there was a determination there that I wanted to be the first Australian woman to win Wimbledon. <laughs> which you became um what what would you say was motivating you what was what what was motivating you uh, or, or throughout all these years what what was sort of what was driving you was it was it well, to be the you best know, i knew the lord back in those times in my own way okay. i used to go to church every sunday uh i knew he was there somehow i that protection, my life, I was brought up with good values and morals and things like that. That was put into me from my mum. And uh, I represented my nation. Yes. We were taught that. We were, we honoured our nation. Uh, there was no money in the game in those amateur days until professional tennis came in. And, um, you know, there was something there. I'd call on God. Uh, for protection or I'd say sometimes when I was playing Lord um, you know I know this gift is from you I always knew that as a little girl the press would say to me why are you so good I'd say it's a gift from God uh, so I had no hesitancy in that mm. and I did give honor where honor was due mm. and uh, I'd say please help me and sometimes uh, I knew there was something far greater than me sometimes a strength would come like an inner strength mm. and i'd say thank you it was like i had this childlike faith uh and i knew my gift was from him and and so that that was there uh, you had your disappointments you had your losses but there was always something in me that thought no i can get better i can i can do this and, uh, you know, you go through uh, in your career, you had disappointments. And in those early years, I did. But something bounced back. It made me even more determined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you've mentioned something of your strengths on court. You, you, you loved, you had a good, strong serve. You, you, you loved volleying. Um, and I'm guessing, was grass your favourite tennis surface? Uh, yes, it was back in that time. Only I won more French than I did Wimbledon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had a thing, I think, about the centre court at Wimbledon. I, I found it was, like, too small for me back then. It was a bit, I liked the big open uh, space. And I think in the French, I got away with the French because I was so fit and I could run them down. But I had that thing I don't know about Wimbledon I got off to a bad start in that I was seeded one and then I lost in the first round it actually uh was for Billie Jean King yes. uh, she was a floater 
back and then we only had eight seeds. She was number two in America, but had never been outside America. And I'd never seen her play. And all of a sudden you're seeded number one. I'd won the Australian, I'd won the French. Uh, you seeded one to win Wimbledon. And uh, she came out from nowhere and I lost to her. And so the press then gave me a hard time. And I think I found that a little bit with Wimbledon. So it wasn't until 63 that I won Wimbledon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, well. Now, in 1967, you married Barry Court, returning to tennis in 1967. And in 1970, you won all four Grand Slam singles titles in a year. Quite incredible. Between 1971 and 1977, you continued to play tennis whilst also raising four children. Also quite amazing, if I may say. Um, you retired from tennis in 1977. Um, across your whole tennis career, do you have any standout tennis moments? Nigel, probably uh, always go back and, you know, I did retire for two years, a bit like Barty has done. Uh, and came to live in Perth, I thought that was the end of my career. And uh, I thought I'd never pick up a tennis racket, but played squash. And that kept me fit. And then when I married Barry, I thought, well, we'll go back into tennis and just see the life I led and then go farming. Uh, but then open tennis came mm. and the, the finance and money side came in. And then somebody said, well, twice you've won three out of the four majors. Why don't you go for the Grand Slam? And I always had vision. I always had goals right throughout my career. I wanted to be the first Australian woman to win Wimbledon. Then I wanted to uh, win the Grand Slam. And then I wanted to be the first mum to be number one in the world. And I, I achieved all those things. And uh, so, but I always look at that Grand Slam year when I played Billie Jean King in the Wimbledon final. Mm. Uh, it was one of the longest matches in history. We didn't have a tiebreaker then. They hadn't come in. And it was 11-9, 14-12. And I'd slipped in the quarterfinals and tore my ankle quite badly. Mm. So I had to pull out of the doubles and the mixed. And the doctor said, I'll put an injection in. You won't do any more damage. But he said it'll only last two and a half hours. So I got through the quarterfinals and I got through the semifinals. And uh, then the final, it was two and a half hours right on that final ball. And so I knew if it had gone to three sets, I wasn't going to, uh, I wouldn't have won it. So I think that was a, the turning point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Now, you have received numerous honours and awards for your tennis, including an MBE uh, and a Companion of the Order of Australia amongst them. Looking to what happened after you stopped playing tennis, clearly God was on the move because right. in 1983, you gained a theological qualification from the Rima Bible Training Centre. And in 1991, you were ordained as an independent Pentecostal minister. Now, how on earth do you go from being a top tennis player uh, to have this total change of direction in your life? How did that happen? Well, after having four little children under the age of eight, and we owned a, 
a property but lived in Perth and Barry, my husband, was up and down all the time. Uh, I came into a time after babies of depression and from that depression I had a torn veil of the heart and then insomnia and I'm thinking, Lord, I know you heal, but I came to a place in my life that life wasn't worth living. Mm. And uh, somebody said to me, and I was on medication for all three, and they said, you'll probably be on medication for the rest of your life. Mm. And I didn't want to do that. And somebody said to me, why don't you come to Bible school? And I said, no, I don't really want much to do with Christianity because I'd gone into wrong teaching. I was fine before I got into the Bible and wrong teaching. And, uh, but something I went and heard, and I heard faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, how I could grow in faith. And I started to learn about Jesus, how Jesus healed today. And uh, I thought I quite like that. And so I sat in Bible school in 1982 and 83. And it was in the second year of Bible school, second half of Bible school, that I knew I was totally healed. My heart was healed. The depression was gone. Uh, insomnia was gone. And my whole life was restored because I learned how to renew the mind. And Nigel, if I'd known about the mind when I was playing tennis, I think I would have won six Wimbledons, not three, because that's where the battlefield is. That's the gateway to the spirit. And I think that's where fear comes. That's where it affects emotions. That's where hurt, brokenness, people get uh, put down, uh, is what we allowed to go in through that mind down into our heart. Amen. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I learned that in Bible school. It turned my life around. And uh, it was in 1991, then quite a few years after Bible school that I got ordained started the Margaret Court Ministries around the city, helping people and teaching in community centers and uh, helping them with food and clothing, but also teaching them how to overcome depression, how to overcome fear. Uh, you know that Jesus heals today. He's a miracle worker. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He loves all mankind. So I really just poured out my heart what what I'd learned and helped a lot of people. So that's how that all started. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned this. Since the time you've applied um, to your faith the same determination and steadfastness that you did to your tennis career, uh, as you said, in 1995, you founded a Pentecostal church in Perth, and in 1997, you established Victory Life Community Services. Uh, in 2014... This was described by a West Australian newspaper as one of West Australia's biggest standalone food charities. And I understand you now supply about 100 tonnes of food each week. I mean, that's right. Praise God. So you're not just you're putting your faith into action. It's not just words. You're actually oh, right. out there putting it into action which is which is fantastic. that's right and it's it's wonderful and people come in and some people give their heart to christ through it but we're there for anybody from any background uh and you know it is to community and we have two other agencies that we work through also that we supply food to and so uh 
we have an international Bible training center. People come from all over the world to come to it. Uh, we also just built a prayer tower, which we'd like to, we're building towards 24 seven, a prayer uh, and our community services. And also we're in 14 nations of the world where we have Bible schools in those nations. So uh, we're doing our part. And I, I look back and I think over this, it's 27 years now that we've been going in ministry. And I think it was only like yesterday, uh, but it's amazing through the power of the Holy Spirit what you can do. And, and I think, you know, when it's time for me to pass this over to my daughter, um, I just feel, well, you've built it and now go on and they'll go to another level. <laughs> oh, Margaret, that is just, I mean, who would have thought, I mean, honestly, who would have thought that, and it's God, you know, it's God, um, but you've been faithful and you've been obedient and you've done what he's called you to do. And you, you've applied, as I said, that same determination on the court to your faith. And, and um, I just think it's incredible. Absolutely. The, incredible. the parallels, Nigel, are amazing because, you know, so much in the Bible is about, you know, Joshua 1.8 there. What did God speak to Joshua before he went in to take the promised land was, let not my word depart out of your mouth meditate in it day and night, observe yeah. to do all that is written within, then I'll make your way prosperous. And so there were some things that he had to do. And a lot of it is parallel with sport, is the disciplines, the yeah. commitments, the repetition, or the meditation of the word of God. If we want, want to get the scripture into our heart, we have to meditate on it, because mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the word of God. Mm -hmm. And he said, let not be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why the mind is so important. And that's where people allow, I think, like with COVID, so much fear come in. He said, I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And that's why we think on it, we meditate it, we speak it. And you find fear leaves because when you give your heart to Christ, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's not going to give you anything outside the scriptures. It's our, just like natural food, it's spiritual food. Mm. But it's there, he said, how often many of us have said the Our Father, let it be here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, when you're full of fear or sickness or depression, I mean, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God said, you don't have to stay that way. Just take my medicine. Mm. Just like a doctor would give you medicine, you take it. And I'll deal with the rest of it. He said in Romans 8, 11 there, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead mm. dwells within us, making alive our mortal flesh. Mm. So he's there. He's our helper, our intercessor, our strengthener, our standby. And he wants us to walk here on earth as it is in heaven, knowing him, mm. know his love, know his word, mm. know his strength, know his refreshing, knowing his presence. We carry his presence. And he wants us to be conscious of it, that we're there to help others, to witness to others, to be able to go and pray and lay hands on the sick, uh, to do the work of the ministry. He's not going to do it. He's waiting for us. Mm. And that's how I feel the body of Christ. It's got to wake up and grow up and get up and realize what they carry. They're like his army in the earth. Mm. And uh, he wants us to bring him 
He wants us to bring him back. Mm. And uh, I believe it's a, we're living in a time where you see the world wars, everything, earthquakes, everything is happening. That's like God saying, come on, church, you're my army. Stop mm. being my voice. Don't lay down and, to the world, but be my voice of righteousness and truth and justness. Because if you don't speak it, you know, when we got saved, we give our heart to Christ. We believe in our heart. Confess with our mouth, the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. It's the only way we get saved. It's not through works. Through our works, we get back under the old covenant, but it's by grace through faith. That's how much he loves us. He says, come on, I did everything at the cross. I fulfilled it for you to walk in it now. Mm. And you know what? Most of the church doesn't know it. And that's what saddens me mm. so much. It's time to have that revival fire and to know uh, and be that voice. The world's getting darker, but the church has got to get lighter. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I mean, when you say it like that, um, you've you've actually got to be mad not to be a Christian, I would say. I know. I know. I mean, it's really, true. It, it really is. You think, well, listen, all. Uh, yeah, I think if you have a clear explanation of the gospel, why would you not? want to be a christian seriously well i was with a man yesterday and i went to a grandparents morning with one of my grandchildren and he was there and he's been a chairperson for the cancer foundation and a wonderful man who's done a lot a lot of work i don't know him really personally uh but he was in his 80s middle 80s and he's been 40 years in in cancer research, everything else, and just talking to him. And he got a little bit dizzy standing there, so I got him a seat. And I said, would you like me to pray for you? And he said, no, not really. It's all right, you know. And we got talking again. And later on, I just saying, you know, you're a wonderful man. Mm. You've done wonderful works. Mm. I said, do you know where you're going when you die? And he said, no. And I said, you know, if you just say this little prayer, you can come into the kingdom. I said, I want to be in heaven with you. <laughs> and you know, you know, I'm going to be in heaven with him. But, but it's so easy. And oh. the church is so fearful about sharing the gospel. Yeah. And we're to share it in love because if we care for people, mm. you know, they, there's so many people not sure where they're going. Yeah. And we should be making sure. They can only say no, but mm. you've given them an opportunity to come to Christ. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. But people today, I feel, are very caught up in things and their life and self. And, you know, with COVID, I think people went inward and instead of outward. And I think, you know, this is the time now, this is the season where we have to bring people to know Christ because there's so much turmoil and they need to know his peace. Amen. 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 Um, in a minute, I'm going to turn a little bit more to the word of God, which I know you absolutely uh, love. Um, but we know that when we seek to follow God wholeheartedly uh, and to seek to be obedient to his word, it can attract criticism. Uh, and you are no stranger to criticism. <laughs> How do you cope? when people criticize you for your biblically held views? Because that can't be easy. 
No, well, many years ago, the Holy Spirit uh, taught me. It was very clear to me because he said, Margaret, when you say what I say in the scriptures, yeah. I take the pressure of it. It's mm. back on him. It's not on me. Uh, when I get somebody saved, I just do my part. If they say no, that's all right. I don't take that on board. And it's the same with criticism. Jesus Christ, uh, the word of God is alive and living. You and I'll pass away, but his word won't. Mm. And so many people, that's what they're coming against is the word of God. Mm. It's not so much Margaret, but it's because of what Jesus said, mm. particularly about marriage. Mm. You know, it was there in Genesis at the beginning. He made male and female, husband, leave your mother and father, cleave to your wife. Then Jesus also said it in the Gospels. Mm. And then Paul said it in Ephesians. Exactly the same wording in all three, in the, the Old Testament, the Gospels, the epistles. It's written there. He said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Mm. So it's his word. So I stand for the word, whether it's salvation, whether it's marriage, uh, whatever it is in life with healing, with fear, we stand on the word of God and we put his word forth and people will either take it or they'll abuse it because the it's the word of God and the Holy Spirit that brings people under conviction. Yes. Not anything I know, not out of my own thoughts or what I think or feel, but it'll be the word of God. And that's why the persecution comes because of the word's sake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, now a pretty, bit of an obvious question, um, but why is the Bible so important to you? The Bible's important to me because I don't believe I'd probably be here today, but for the Bible. When I went through that dreadful time, life wasn't worth living. I rather would have gone home with the Lord or finished up in a home somewhere. Mm. I know it restored my life. I know it's made me a better person. It's made me understand so much of, I think, what you see in the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's our TV guide to life. It's our roadmap to success. Mm. And, mm. Uh, you know, if you look at it, uh, we should have been brought up as little people on it, as from a childhood. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't have the struggles. We wouldn't go through so much of the stuff that we go through if we knew the love of Jesus Christ, if yeah. he was real to us. And, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, sin and sickness came in the world, but they walked with God. They talked with God. It wasn't until they ate of the fruit in the garden when God told them not to, that then they realized they were naked, but they walked with God. And Jesus Christ came into the earth to bring us back into that place, to have fellowship with him, to have relationship with him, to walk with him, to talk with him, to know the power of the Holy Spirit here on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. So when you understand the Bible is such a spiritual book, we are spiritual people made in the image of God, as he is, so we in this world. That's our spiritual food. You start to realize it's spirit to spirit, bone to bone, flesh to flesh, mm. uh, that we, we walk here. And when we die, it's just going on to be with the Lord. Yeah. Uh, it's the reality of it, um, that we need to know that. Yes, yes. And you want it to be a part of your life here. That's why the Bible is a reality of it. I may not know the Bible like 
you know, Rhodes scholars or, or theological, you know, teachers, but, you know, he wants us to grow in faith. Mm. And, uh, you know, as a little girl, he showed me at 13, I wanted to be the first Australian woman ever to win Wimbledon. I used to say that. <laughs> Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm. And so our words are so important. Words are a creative force. If you go back and look at Genesis, how God spoke the world into being, he spoke us, made us in his image as sons and daughters. We're royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Our faith and our life will be no higher than our words. And I think that was the one thing that I learned in Bible school, how important my words were. Mm. And that's where he took me back to that 13 years of age. I didn't know anything about faith. If you looked at me, there was no way that I could have in the natural become number one in the world. Mm. But it was like people on the path on my way. Mm. And that's why there will always be people uh, sharing the gospel. And that's why there'll be so much coming against it because we have an enemy. The thief comes to kill and destroy and defeat. But Jesus came that we have life and we have it more abundantly. Mm. So that's why it, it's so important that out of the abundance of the heart that we share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. He's alive today. And there's so much in the world coming against Christianity. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, that's why you get persecuted. If you're not getting persecuted, you're not doing much. <laughs> oh, goodness me. I can just tell the word of God is just coming out of you all the time. It's it's wonderful. It's fantastic. You know, I I uh, myself um, got to the point where in my own journey of faith, where I really wanted to um, get to know God for myself. And somebody said to me, well, you want to know god you've got to study the bible you've got to read the bible and I, I, again like you i wasn't the brightest in the pack in the classroom but i loved being on the sports but in fact if my english teacher i've said this a few times my english teacher was called mrs strong i was a 10 year old boy at school and she would clap her hands and say right boys and if she said these two words which i'm about to tell you i would mentally be on the sports pitches i'd be on the tennis pit, uh, gotcha. court. and the, these words were comprehension and prose so she would say, right, we're going to do some comprehension on this piece of prose. And from that moment, I was I was playing tennis mentally on, on the court. <laughs> um, and so, I, I, you know, I really I, and the Bible's a big book. It's a big book. You know, how do I study the Bible? And um, and in my own journey of faith, um, I had that heart to get to know God for myself and um, came across a ministry called Precept Ministries, led by a couple called Jack and Kay Arthur. I don't know whether you've met. I've heard the name, yeah. Have you? Kay, Kay is a similar age to you, used mightily by God across the world in, in this ministry. And and she, God gave you, God gave you an incredible gift uh, to play tennis uh, and also what you're doing now, of course. But God gave Kay an incredible teaching gift. Um, and I know you're a great teacher, too. And she just wanted to teach people how to study the That's word right. of God. And um, and then she moved from one part of America to another. And people said, well, how do we do what you do? We want to we want to know how do you do that? So she started writing these Bible studies. Well, this is what you do. You know, you you ask questions of the text. You you mark the words that are, you know, you you make lists. You look for places and time references. And anyway, she wrote guides for people how to study the Bible. Bible. And over a period of time, and now the ministry is 52 years old. It was founded in 1970, interestingly. Okay. Uh, 
and it's in 180 countries now. And we came across the ministry in 1996. And I thought, oh, my goodness me, this is like a guide. This is like a mentor that reading this book about how to actually study the word of God. And then 10 years later, um, you know, God had to do a big work in my life, you know, from leaving being a military helicopter pilot to, to teaching people how to study the Bible. You know, my apprenticeship was that 10 years. Uh, and God just made it clear in 2006 that I was to leave. Everybody thought I was crazy. My father, who was a brigadier, thought, what are you doing, son? You're mad. You've got a mortgage. You've got three kids at school. You know what? But I had a real peace. I had a peace. That's right. That's and right. so started a journey of teaching people how to study the Bible using using these uh, resources. And I just talking to you, I can just see you, you, you clearly spend have spent time in the word of God because it just comes out of you, you know. And well, I never wanted to be a pastor, Nigel. I'd, I'd stay with pastors in those early years, and I think, oh, they go through so much. I don't want a pastor. And uh, I thought, well, I'm quite happy out evangelizing around the city and doing what I'm doing and had that freedom. I didn't want a pastor. And uh, when he called me to be a pastor, he showed me, and I thought, well, I don't want to be that, but I know he must have had everything planned and uh you know then that anointing comes on you and helping people and changing people's lives so yeah um amen it's wonderful i love i loved my tennis life what i did i love what i do today even more yeah wow 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 do you have a favorite bible book or character probably uh probably ephesians i think that was the book and the Bible, uh, I think, to the church to know who we are in Christ, the Christ within us, in him, in whom, in Christ. Mm. And I think that takes some times when you're growing to know who we are in him and him in us, we in him. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful, it's a church, you know, the church age that we're living in. And I think we, we need to know uh, we praise God for the Old Testament, the types, the shadows, mm -hmm. the great men and women of God in it. But we are actually church age, we're the grace age, we're the righteous age, and Jesus Christ fulfilled all, so that we don't have to keep going back into our works under the law. Mm -hmm. But we're already made righteous. We're seated in heavenly places by grace through faith. And prayer is such a key, Nigel, to mm -hmm. know how to pray. Uh, and have that intimacy with God and to be able to just come like childlike and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? Mm. And, and just to receive and then release it. He yeah. won't give you anything outside the Bible. Mm. And he wants us to restore around us to replenish the earth. And that's what the Holy Spirit did in the beginning. And he wants that to happen today. Yeah, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Is, there, is there a verse that you would, you're sort of your sort of go-to verse or not? I know that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, well, there's a few there, but probably the one when I wasn't very well and I had a lot of fear in my life was 2 Timothy 1.7. I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Mm. And because my mind wasn't in a right place back in that time, and I think, you know, I started saying I had a sound mind before I did have a sound mind. And mm. I started to find them. My mind got renewed. 
and I was thinking on the word of God, not on the problems and the cares and the stresses and all those areas. And I think Philippians 4, 6, he said, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known, not your problems all the time, mm. but your requests. What do you desire to see? Mm. What, what would you like? What, you know, he wants us to think on the answer all the time, not the problems. Yeah. And that's where so many people are in care and fear and mm. worry are all a form of fear. But he said, no, look into the Bible. And that's what I did. I got a sheet of paper, wrote all my problems down, and then I found the scripture. And I wrote the scripture there and I took the sheet with all the problems on it, screwed it up and put it in the rubbish bin. And I had all the answers <laughs> to all my problems. So I kept reminding him of his word. So that's how you get it into your heart. And I think that's where I learned Hey, as a man thinketh, so is he. Yeah. And uh, it's so important, the, particularly the mind area. Yeah. I want to finish with a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I met you for the first time at Wimbledon this year. What a blessing that was for me. And you so graciously gave me your latest book called Building Cha a Champion Spirit, uh, which you kindly signed as well. And I love this book because it is so biblical Um but it is also so practical. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to appropriate something of what Margaret is talking about, I really do recommend Building a Champion by Margaret Court. It, it, it's practical. Um, there's some great scriptures in here and it will help you tremendously. I've got one last question I want to ask you. There may be somebody listening to this podcast who is not a believer and you've got them thinking. Um, and they may have had struggles in their life um, and they're, they're, they're not sure about this whole Christian thing. What would you say to that person? Well, I'd say to many people, it's probably uh, a good thing to probably go to church or find a church. But I think to look in the Bible uh, to Romans 10, 9 and 10, and, uh, you know, you can always say this prayer after me, uh, because if you want Jesus in your heart, uh, you say it and believe it. Say, yes, Lord, I want to know you. I want to receive you. Because a lot of people think they know about him, but they don't know how to receive him. And if you genuinely invite him into your heart, he will reveal himself to you. And, uh, you know, you've got nothing to lose. And, uh, you know, you can go the way of the world. And I think people try everything, meditation, drugs, you name it, looking for what we have. They're looking for peace. They're looking for love. And there's nothing quite like the uncompromising love of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll know his love because love will come and live on the inside of you. His nature will come into you. His gifts will come into you. What he did on the cross, what he fulfilled at the cross, he said, now I'm giving it to you, everything that I did on the cross, so you can fulfill my will in the earth. And that's what's so wonderful about spiritual things. People are looking in all other spiritual areas, but this one, Jesus Christ is not out to get you. God is not out to get you. He gave his life. That's how much he loves you. So you can say this prayer. I'll say this prayer and you say it after me and, and you believe it. He'll come and live on the inside of you.
So we'll say, dear Jesus, forgive me for my sins of my past. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I confess with my mouth this day that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I thank you, Jesus, for coming into my heart today. And I'll follow you all the days of my life. Now that is so simple, that prayer, that the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, all three have come to live in your human spirit because you are a spirit. You live in a body and you have a soul and it's spirit to spirit. And as you have said that and you start to open your Bible in the Gospels and the Epistles, Jesus will start to reveal his word to you. That's how powerful it is. Just through that little prayer, we don't work our way to heaven. Why? Because he loves the drug addict, the alcoholic, the man in the garden, the man in prison. He gave his heart for all mankind. And that's how much he loves us. Amen. 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 And if you said that prayer, praise the Lord for that. Um, and uh, if you're in the UK, please, please contact us at Precept. We would love to walk a journey with you and encourage you in your Bible study. Uh, please do that. Um, Margaret, it has been an absolute treasure and a joy to speak to you today. I want to, you're in Australia, I'm in the UK. Thank you, Lord, that the IT worked well. Um, I just uh, thank the Lord for you, for your um incredible achievements on the tennis court but but you know how the lord has called you how you've responded and been obedient and still being obedient to to what he is calling you to do and look at the fruit look at the spiritual fruit you you've been an incredible tennis champion and you are a spiritual champion of the faith so god bless you thank you so much uh press on i look forward to if you come back to wimbledon whenever that is um giving you a big hug and saying thank you and just pray that when this goes out uh, that the lord uses it mightily for his purposes so for for those of you who are listening thank you for listening and for um margaret court thank you so much for being on the bible and me podcast today i really appreciate it thank you nigel and you keep up the good work and uh, on one side of the world to the other it's like i always say it's like righteousness kissing in the heavens <laughs> and uh, the mercy of God and the love of God coming down upon our nations. So thank you. Uh, Honour to be talking with you anytime. Oh, God bless. Thank you so you much. Too. Thank you.